Welcome to episode 24 of the Progression Health Podcast, and uh, this is the sleep series. So I'm here with Dr. Adam Bramowitz, a sleep expert. And uh, Adam, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Adam Bramowitz. I'm a clinical psychologist and investigator at the VA Pittsburgh Healthcare System, and where my, my program of research is focused on uh, increasing access to care for insomnia interventions and, and more broadly kind of behavioral sleep health. Uh, and I also serve as a staff psychologist where I uh, treat, uh, treat patients one day a week. I'm in clinic and helping them with their uh, insomnia and other behavioral sleep health problems. Great, yeah, so you do a lot of different work and have a lot of experience. So you, you talked about a little bit off air as well about uh, increasing services um, for people who need to improve their sleep. Um, what are the, what's the current services available to people? Like let's say somebody wants to improve their sleep. Are they well supported? Is there a lot of improvements that could be made? What are your thoughts around that area? Yeah, so so as I said, my, my program of research is access to care. And I think that, you know, so I specifically have kind of three lines of research there. I'm looking at clinical trials, uh, so specific interventions that uh, have an evidence base or development of new interventions that may help uh, veterans kind of access care in different ways, whether it's face-to-face, -face, using telehealth, or kind of being fully digital, self-managed. Uh, I'm also, you know, spend probably most of my time working with systems, and uh, so looking at clinics, providers, healthcare system in general on what are various barriers and uh, facilitators of how we can improve access to care. So looking at, is it a training issue? Do we need to train more providers? Is it, you know, an infrastructure issue? There's, there's no office space. There aren't enough staff to provide this treatment. Um, and then I also am interested in using kind of a big data approach. So looking at electronic medical records and looking for uh, variables, whether it's clinical or sociodemographic, to see is like what are factors that could increase or again block and uh, engagement in care. Uh, so, so that could be different groups. You know, certainly looking for uh, whether it's you know diversity, equity, inclusion. So, are there racial uh, differences? Are there ethnic differences? Are there gender differences? Or is it more uh, geographical? Or is it rural versus urban? So these are data points in the medical record that we can use to identify and target different groups to make sure that care is accessible. Um, you know, uh, kind of to get back to your original question, you know, access to care is such a big topic. Uh, when it comes to sleep health, I think you think of what is available um, and kind of break it down into the different types of disorders. You have something like sleep apnea. This is a medical condition. Uh, you need to see a physician to diagnose it, to treat it. It might involve a sleep study of sorts. And uh, then you have the work that I do, which is more behavioral in nature. There's, uh, that, that's also where there's often an excel accessibility issue is that sometimes there just aren't as many behaviorally trained providers to offer the treatment that's needed for a disorder such as insomnia. So this is a disorder that 
typically is going to be treated with a medication, often because of an availability issue. It's much easier to write a prescription because you may not have a psychologist or another uh, trained provider who can deliver the evidence-based behavioral practice. Uh, so when that is not available or you don't know how to access that, to treat is to write a prescription or, you know, they're kind of often are left scratching your head of how do I treat this patient? Yeah, that makes me think of, uh, I think a lot of people, just in my experience, so you correct me here if I'm wrong, but a lot of people who don't sleep as well as they would like, they have the belief that it's kind of just like, that's just how I sleep and that's it. You know, I can't improve it. Would you agree with that? That a lot of people, because for me, that's like a limiting belief, you know, as in maybe it, you sleep six is. hours. Yeah. Yeah, could yeah. you touch a little bit no, on that uh, beliefs around sleep? The, kind of this belief about sleep and sleep is considering we spend uh, you know 25% to a third of our lives doing it, sleep is kind of often pushed to the side in terms of prioritizing. We we we're such a 24-hour society, you know, you can even go back uh, into the history kind of like you follow the history of our advancements in technology, even you know when when the light bulb was invented. Well, all of a sudden we can work twenty four seven, and we don't just have like have fires lit, um, and that can that changed our sleep. Um, so yes, I think a lot of individuals sleep is not prioritized, and like as you said, it's just like well that's just the way I sleep. That's just the way it is, and they don't often think of can I change it? And, and sometimes it's not just, it's not just me. You might, they might say, well, everyone I know has trouble sleeping. No, this is just normal. And that's where I know as, myself as someone I've been involved in sleep for 15 plus years. And you learn, it's like, well, no, it's not normal. And there are actually a lot of ways to improve your sleep, whether it's simply you have, you want to kind of improve your sleep more generally. You start to recognize, hey, you know, when I get a good night's sleep, I feel better. I work better. I work out better. Or if it's actually to the point of I have a sleep disorder, you know, across that spectrum, there are numerous ways to improve, uh, to improve and change your sleep. Yeah. It's like, just because it's common among people doesn't mean that it's, it's normal. Yeah. So you just talked a little bit about like telehealth and, you know, access to, to health um, or to sleep services. Um, so how effective is it if someone was to do a kind of a, a session or a sleep session uh, via the Zoom call, for example, that we're doing right now? Is it as effective and, and is it uh, becoming more accessible given the times we're in with the pandemic and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It's so I'll start by saying, it is effective, and that's based off of the clinical trial studies uh, that have shown that you can deliver, and I'll focus on treatment, behavioral treatment for insomnia. So that's typically called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That's currently what we call kind of the gold standard first line intervention, or some adaptive versions. I use a treatment called brief behavioral treatment for insomnia, where it's, it's similar, it's really focused on the behavioral components of CBTI and done in a somewhat briefer fashion. So those are the two evidence-based practices for intervention, uh, I'm sorry, for insomnia. And pretty much all the research that's been done has shown that whether it's delivered face-to-face -face individually, face-to-face in groups, 
using telehealth that it's effective. You know, it's better, it's, it's more effective than doing nothing or these other kind of control conditions. With tele, you know, with telehealth, so whether it's kind of like us, we're on Zoom, we're looking at each other, we can interact, we can share documents. It could be via phone. And some even uh, newer versions that have still been around for quite some time, but using uh, kind of a, a digital inter interface, there's not a person, you know, you're not working with a clinician, but you're working through a program of sorts. So there are a couple of different programs out there, but it's either desktop based, phone based, app based, that those are also effective. There's newer research that's starting to compare these different versions. And some has shown that face-to-face -face might be somewhat more effective than digital. But I think what it really comes down to is finding the right fit for the patient. And this is in line with um, kind of precision medicine that you'll see in other fields in that it's all about matching the treatment to the individual. You know, at the highest level, we're looking at genetics. You know, what is an individual's genetics? How can we match that to a cancer medication? And it still applies to something like, uh, you know, mental health interventions is that some individuals based on their unique situation of their symptoms and what's going on in their lives in general is what's the intervention that's going to work best for them. Yeah, that's great. So then what are the options? So let's just say we have like a listener who, you know, has insomnia or just doesn't sleep as, as much as they would like, you know, for example, myself, I sleep like six hours. I'd like to sleep seven or eight. What are the options available uh, to improve their sleep? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, this is where you start to look at kind of the, all the different doors a patient might have to walk through. So typically a patient might go to their uh, PCP or their family practitioner and say, hey, I have, I'm not sleeping well, or I have these complaints. That provider then would refer them out most likely. Uh, again, this is if they're going down the pathway of um, beha a behavioral intervention. So if they're in a large academic medical center, maybe there is a psychologist or another mental health clinician who's been trained in CBTI or BBTI. Uh, so in the VA healthcare system, that's, that's pretty much how it works is a patient tells usually one of their medical providers that they're having trouble sleeping, a referral gets submitted, and, you know, I'm, I open up the electronic health records, I see, you know, Mr. So-and-so is, is having trouble sleeping, I call, I schedule an appointment. Uh, that kind of going back to access to care, this is where there's often big differences in where, which, which healthcare system are you in, where do you get your care? The VA has done a great job of training providers. So it's relatively easy to find a provider who's trained this way. Outside the VA, when you get outside of large academic medical centers or urban centers, it becomes a lot more challenging. Uh, so that referral process now can become a lot more effortful. Again, if you're in a larger healthcare system, you may know those providers or you have a psychiatry department that you can refer to, they may have providers who are trained. If you are in a more rural healthcare system or simply a smaller town is that it's gonna be a lot more challenging to find someone who does this treatment. 
you may be able to refer them to a psychologist, but that psychologist might be a more, more generally trained. You know, they can treat depression, anxiety, maybe trauma, maybe substance use. Sleep disorders, while becoming more common and more available to get trained in, is still a relative, relatively a specialist field. So finding a provider, especially at the kind of the highest level of training, which would either be having a certificate in behavioral sleep medicine or being a diplomat in behavioral sleep medicine, there's only a few hundred of us in the whole country, uh, really in the whole world. Uh, so finding someone at that level is going to be difficult. No, we can go to the society. You can go online to find that person, but are they in your town? What's the wait list like? So, right, kind of said, how many doors do you need to open to get to the treatment you want is, is really going to differ based on what, resor what resources are available to you. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of like be aware that if you live in a more rural area, it's probably going to be a bit more challenging, but then there's the option mm -hmm. of telehealth, which is, which is great. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So with telehealth, you know, a lot more doors are being opened. So certainly, uh, and there are, there are different kind of laws in place that you are licensed to practice in a state. Um, so, but that means anywhere within the state. So if I have a private practice in Pennsylvania, and I do telehealth is now I can see patients that live anywhere in Pennsylvania. I might, you know, have be able to get my name on a variety of lists. So patient just searches insomnia treatment, maybe they can find me that way and uh, can deliver care. Uh, you know, and then we also talked about these kind of fully digital options that are usually for cost, but relatively inexpensive when you think of what it might cost to see a private practice psychologist. It could be anywhere from 75, 100, $150, $200 a session if they don't take insurance. So some of these digital interventions um, could cost $100, $150. You get six, eight sessions over six months of time. They, they all vary a little bit, but they're going to give you kind of this course of treatment that is typically fairly standard. I think they're learning to develop ways to customize a treatment without an, a clinician uh, involved. Um, but that's, and so again, that's something that you can find on your phone, you can find online. So it's, an e it's as easy as, you know, if you have an internet connection and you can find the app that you want. Um, part of the problem there is there are, are there are a lot of different options. How many of them have been kind of critically studied? Uh, you know, not all of them, even though they all may sort of be based on the same foundation, there are always these nuances that, you know, if something hasn't been really kind of like thoroughly studied, how can they prove that their intervention works? You know, I think that's, that's the skeptic in me of with the, with the growth in that area. I and mean, there's certainly, there's a lot out there that has great evidence. They've gone through the studies, they've got critical review, but I think there's also a lot out there that hasn't gone through that process. And it's hard for a consumer to vet that themselves without having that training and that experience. Yeah, exactly. They would have no idea what's the effective uh, treatment or not. So just in terms of getting treatment for sleep. So if someone has 
insomnia, what, what have you, after sleep apnea. Um, I know it's kind of a question like how long is a piece of string, but how, how many sessions roughly should someone uh, be kind of waiting to see an improvement in their sleep? So it's like, could someone see an improvement in their sleep after just like one, let's say one hour session with a specialist? So it, it is possible. There's been some uh, recent inner uh, kind of recent studies that are looking at sort of a single shot of treatment, whether it's sort of a, uh, a, a few hours kind of seminar where you get a lot of information and then maybe you get like resources on how to management. You get taught, this is how you manage your sleep. Typically, a course of treatment is going to range from four to eight sessions. So CBT for insomnia was, was, I believe, initially structured as sort of an eight-session intervention. The VA and the way we kind of do our training is it's done uh, six sessions, kind of that's a standard approach, and that includes an intake and five therapy sessions. But the approach is done, uh, what we call case conceptualization, which really means we're going to deliver treatment that's appropriate for the patient in front of us based on their needs. The abbreviated version, so uh, again, I do something called brief behavioral treatment for insomnia. And that's typically done in four 30-minute uh, treatment sessions. Uh, and so that, uh, in the way I use it, I target it more for more of a mild to moderate severity of insomnia in more of a primary care setting. And so that's where my area of interest lies and in how one way I'm trying to increase access to care is that if we can have clinicians delivering this briefer treatment in the primary care setting, and these would be um, like primary care psychologists, primary care social workers, primary care nurses, uh, with a mental health background, uh, that it, it may provide more access versus sending somebody over to a behavioral health or mental health clinic. Got it. So um, just with the, the change in health and it's going more towards telehealth, and I think I'm just thinking of someone like my, my, my mom's age is a bit older, they'd be a bit uncertain of using telehealth. How confident are you in like recommending it to, to somebody um, and, and how good do you think uh, professionals are using it to provide the same service yeah. as in person? I, I think that varies and there's definitely a learning curve. And, uh, you know, I, I myself had a learning curve. I was uh, and the pandemic really forced the issue. And I think, you no, know, well, <laughs> the pandemic is awful. The way it advanced healthcare. I think has had important implications. So telehealth, you know, I think is here to stay and that's a good thing. Again, it's gonna increase access in ways. So, but right, not everybody wants to do telehealth, uh, but if the option is driving two hours to come into, uh, come into the city, uh, now come into an urban area that maybe is, no, not ideal. I mean, even if you live in an urban area, you might wanna drive downtown um, or, you have a video call or even a phone call, you know, I think what's gonna allow us to deliver care versus no care. Uh, so I work, you know, the VA, most veterans are, I believe over 50%, around 50% are 65 and older. So this is an older population for the most part. I primarily deliver telehealth now. And so I do a lot of video calls and phone calls with older adults. And I would say that many of them either don't want to, 
or don't have the ability to do a video call. They don't have a computer. They don't have a reliable internet. Um, or, you know, again, they just don't want to do it or they feel more comfortable on the phone. So I do a lot of phone therapy and can it be effective? Yes. Is it as effective? I think, again, it depends on the person, but in general, I think the more kind of connection that I can have with a patient and that involves kind of interacting with them, seeing them, them seeing me, typically the better. Very good. Yeah. I never actually considered that you would just do a phone call, which is like mm -hmm. even more accessibility, which is brilliant. So basically, uh, not to say that one session will cure anyone, but one session is enough to see a difference, but then your approach, um, uh, the, the BBTI, uh, mm -hmm. is a, a newer approach that's uh, shorter that can be effective and then there's options dependent on a person's ability so uh video calls via zoom which i assumed everyone could do but of course there isn't that uh, ability um and then also phone calls so yeah that's brilliant that's really good to know um and you've just mentioned veterans a few times or va would you just mm -hmm. explain that a little bit um why there's a need for veterans to have uh treatment for sleep so something that uh, I, I learned early on in joining the VA is really just how prevalent sleep disorders are. And again, I focus on insomnia primarily. And so insomnia is not just, it's not that you necessarily can't sleep, but it's that you have difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, waking up too early, can't get back to sleep, that this is causing a an impairment in your in your life and your function it's happening frequently and it's happening chronically uh, so the textbook definition is you know at least three days a week for three months most of the patients i see is it's been years and uh you know i think the there's a study that showed by the time a patient talks to their pcp and says i have insomnia it's been 10 years so what I learned, and I think one of the reasons why I, I really like training in the VA and stayed in the VA is the type of healthcare system it is and kind of being able to have access to all of the data. So it's not just Pittsburgh that I can, Pittsburgh kind of healthcare records, like I, we can look nationally and that's such a huge resource that the VA provides being a connected healthcare system. So that so allows, allows you to look at trends, at data. And so something I found, you know, again, so I have, I'm a clinician, is I kind of know, have a sense of what the problem is in, in a population. But then you start looking at medical records and say, what is documented? And there was a huge gap, a huge discrepancy. So you think of insomnia and some studies might say, well, 10% of the population meets criteria of insomnia disorder. Uh, but maybe 30, 40, 50% have some symptom, symptoms of insomnia, at least some of the time. What I found in, in some of the research I've done at the VA and others have as well is that you're looking at two, three, maybe 5% actually have documentation of insomnia as a disorder. So we know that there's a huge gap. You also start looking at medication use. So sleep medications, which is 20, 25% and higher, depending on the population you're looking at. So again, that's indicative that insomnia is being treated, but it's not being diagnosed. So that again, is just kind of signal to me that it's under recognized as a disorder and that more, 
just kind of there needs to be more efforts made to recognize it appropriately, which can kind of pave the way to appropriate treatment. Um, I think one of, one of the things that I, I realized early on, uh, and certainly not the first, uh, this work has been uh, done, done by many others, but insomnia as a symptom, as opposed to insomnia as a disorder, and this has really changed over the past 20, 30 years, Insomnia is a symptom of so many disorders. Uh, and no, you can you just think of anytime you're sick, you get injured, you're stressed, sleep is often affected. So for a long time, sleep and insomnia saying, well, it's secondary. Insomnia is a secondary. If we treat the other thing, the sleep will get better. You know, as more and more research was done, we kind of realized, well, the depression got better but they're still having trouble sleeping. We improve their pain, but they still don't sleep well. It's like they had experienced a trauma. They went through treatments for PTSD, but they're still not sleeping well. So the insomnia was no longer secondary. It was really its own disorder. It was a comorbid disorder that without targeted treatment, it often doesn't improve. Uh, and, and that's kind of the stubbornness of insomnia is that treating the comorbid disorder or what you might think is the primary disorder doesn't often improve the sleep. So that's also something kind of I realized as I got more into the data and kind of my own program of research studying, this is why access to care is so important. And this is why these different kind of variety of interventions are becoming more important, which is really helping the whole population find pathways to get the treatment they need. Yeah. So what is the most common cause of insomnia? Is, is there one sort of most common cause? And, and just, can I just backtrack as well and say that insomnia, is it also the most common uh, sleep condition as well? Is that right? So insomnia is the most common sleep condition. I, I forget the exact numbers, but insomnia, and I believe, uh, obstructive sleep apnea would be the second uh, most common uh, sleep disorder. So, you know, and this is maybe where my, my kind of bias as a clinician is, or I'm kind of, uh, kind of think about it differently because the cause of insomnia is actually less important to me, especially when we're, when you're approaching it from a behavioral perspective, is that one way to think of insomnia and the progression of insomnia is, uh, we can call it uh, the three P model. Uh, so we have these predisposing factors. Uh, maybe it's your genetics, your biology, your anatomy, physiology, or something like. I've always been a light sleeper. It kind of puts you. There's a certain kind of baseline or threshold that uh, it it kind of is pushing you towards of in, of kind of crossing that line of insomnia. That's something we don't we can't really change. It's it's uh, innate. Next, you have what we call the precipitating factor, right? This might be the cause of the insomnia. Maybe, uh, right, it was an injury, uh, an illness. No, I work with veterans. It could have been a deployment, being in combat, uh, you know, experiencing a traumatic event. A lot of the veterans I see, it's simply leaving the military and joining, you know, the kind of the civilian life and that change in schedule that uh, maybe there's kind of like a change in their life's purpose. Um, a lot of the veterans I see older, when they retire, their schedule changes, their priorities change. All of that can lead to insomnia. 
So that's that precipitating factor that kind of pushes you over that threshold. As a clinician, what I'm focused on are what we call perpetuating factors. These are often the behaviors that you might engage in to help cope early on. So I'm having trouble sleeping, so I'm going to drink an extra cup of coffee. I'm going to try to sleep in. I'm going to go to bed early. Um, you know, or I can't sleep. I'm going to start watching TV in bed, you know, or I'm going to get on my phone. And so there are these behaviors that you're using to cope, but over time, they're typically causing more harm than good. These are the perpetuating factors. They could also be the cognition. So when you don't sleep well, your brain, your mind is often racing. You're having negative thoughts. You're thinking about all the things you need to do. You're thinking about, you know, uh, I got to drive a long way tomorrow. Am I going to be alert enough? You know, am I going to get my work done? Am I going to get fired? So, or, you know, oh boy, I can't sleep. What health issues is this causing me? So there are all variety of cognitions that can now cause problems. So those perpetuating factors are what are targeted as part of CBTI or BBTI. And typically they are modifiable. And that's what we're going to target. So say, these are things that can change. That's what I'm going to focus on. Because the cause of the insomnia, you know, again, for me, these are, these are veterans. A lot of times it was Vietnam. You know, that's what, 60 years ago now? That's not changeable. And what happened then, again, they, whether it was traumatic, simply a deployment, that's in the past. But it's their behaviors and their cognitions that I'm going to focus on that are modifiable that then we can improve to improve their sleep. So for people who might have insomnia or for uh, any kind of sleep conditions they may have, when would you recommend they go see a specialist or like, is there any kind of telltale signs that would uh, lead you to recommend somebody see a specialist for sleep? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when it comes to, to sleep disorders, there is a, an important process of kind of ruling out other conditions. So, you know, depending on what the presenting symptom, symptoms are, are going to kind of, again, determine what path you're on. So if somebody uh, is coming in and, and, talk, and has those uh, insomnia symptoms, so I'm having trouble falling asleep, you know, it takes me hours, I have racing thoughts, or I'm waking up a lot in the middle of the night and I can't get back to sleep, and I'm, I'm very fatigued during the day. So that is typically going to start you on a path, uh, usually kind of towards mental or behavioral health, since that's where the clinicians typically kind of live that treat the the disorder. Uh, sometimes that could mean going to see a psychiatrist first. Uh, again, it kind of depends where, what kind of community you're in, what resources are accessible to you. Uh, that again could determine, or could you be started on a medication first, or could you get to the um, kind of the, the non-medication treatment pathway? Uh, if it's something like sleep apnea, so the symptoms could be, well, my my bed partner says I snore like a freight train, or they even say I stop breathing in my sleep at night. Uh, you know, I feel okay during the day, but as soon as I sit down, I fall asleep. No matter where I am, I've fallen asleep driving a few times um, or had some close calls. Uh, and, you know, so that it could be something like, is this obstructive sleep apnea? So that would typically lead to a referral to a sleep medicine specialist. So these are often pulmonologists or they could be neurologists 
or ENT, psychiatrists, or a few other specialties that will get further training in sleep medicine. Uh, so that will again lead to more of a, an another consult and then could lead to an overnight sleep study. So those are now often done at home. They have many devices that uh, you can send home with a patient. They connect it to themselves, a few kind of leads on the head. You can wear something around, you know, on your finger, on the wrist, a strap around your chest that's going to measure some brain activity, breathing activity, uh, heart rate activity that can determine is there, are there obstructive apneas or hypopneas. And that's, again, when you stop breathing or your breathing becomes much more shallow at night to an extent that it's causing problems. Uh, there could be other disorders such as, are you moving around a lot in your sleep? Kind of, are you acting out your dreams? Or does your bed, bed partner say, it's like you're running a race at night or you're punching and kicking? Uh, and so is that indicative of something like a periodic limb movement disorder? Is it a REM or non-REM behavioral sleep disorder? Uh, again, those would typically be evaluated by a sleep medicine uh, physician. Uh, and, then, and then you have a more rare disorder, something like narcolepsy, where you have these kind of sleep attacks where you can be very sleepy and fall asleep very suddenly. Uh, and that uh, can certainly have many, many uh, functional and quality of life uh, disorder uh, or uh, impairments, um, often linked to even co you know, cognitive issues as well. A lot of what is described as a brain fog. Uh, so it's not just the falling asleep or having sleep attacks, but kind of just functioning and having that cognitive kind of cognitive ability uh, to get through the day, get your work done. So there are a variety of different sleep orders. Most would likely send you down the path of sleep medicine. And a lot of insomnia starts there. So again, kind of my experience is the VA. So I get a lot of my referrals from sleep medicine. So maybe it was a PCP who refers a patient with sleep problems to the sleep medicine providers. They do their own consult and they say, well, it doesn't seem likely that they have sleep apnea, but they're reporting symptoms of insomnia. So I'm going to send them over to see Adam, you know, so they submit that consult. Uh, while, whereas sometimes I get more of a direct consult from a PCP uh, for us, like this is, they're having trouble sleeping. This seems like insomnia, or maybe they already have sleep apnea. So they say, well, they're already being treated for sleep apnea. So I'm going to send them for insomnia to the insomnia specialist. Got it. So it's like, notice some uh, issue with your sleep, whether it be the quality, um, quantity, or maybe your cognition throughout your, your, your mental focus or ability throughout the day. And then notice that that is happening, you know, there's an issue over the long term. And then from there, you know, seek to uh, see a specialist. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah. I think you kind of, you, you summed it up. It's, it's sleep quality, sleep quantity. How is it impacting your function? Now, that's always what's important. Every now and then I'll get a referral and there might be a complaint of, you know, well, I only get four to five hours of sleep or, you know, it takes me a while to fall asleep. I'm up in the middle of night and then you get to the, well, how does it affect you during the day or how does it impact your life? And they, they might say, well, it doesn't. I, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I can do what I want to do. It doesn't impair my quality. So I say, well, do we need to treat this individual? 
sometimes the symptoms that they present certainly are outside the, you know, the norm or what we might expect to be the norm. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's a disorder or there needs to be intervention. But right, I think for an individual who's maybe saying, well, do I need to see a, a, a specialist, right? So I think, you know, you were right. It's, am I, do, am I getting sufficient sleep? You know, am I happy with the quality of the sleep I'm getting? When I wake up in the morning, do I feel rested and refreshed? And that's not to mean you have to always wake up bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, but it's kind of more kind of big picture is that like every day, do I feel like, man, I need another hour of sleep or, you know, right. It's just this, my sleep very fragmented. Does the sleep I get affect my bed partner? You know, that's a lot of sleep apnea is diagnosed by the bed partner because the patient might say, well, it doesn't, I sleep fine. I don't have a problem, but the partner isn't sleeping because the snoring is keeping them up or they're worried their bed partner isn't going to, you know, is going to stop breathing. You know, those are very, you know, kind of real world presentations in the sleep clinic. Yeah. So it's like doing analysis of your sleep, you know, comprehensive analysis. It doesn't require a whole lot of expertise, but it sounds like just think of everything, like we said, like uh, duration, quality, and then also there's like uh, the mobile health devices as well that are available, which also help. I have one. Um, so just, yeah, I, I think uh, the wearables, like the, uh, the commercial wearables are good tools, but with a, with a big grain of salt, cause they, you know, they're not medical devices, but a lot of, you know, the watch smart watches can tell you what your sleep kind of looks like. It might tell you how much sleep you're getting. Uh, are you, you know, uh, some of them will say kind of get a sense of deep sleep or what stage of sleep that you really can't do that unless you are getting EEG done, but uh, it's typically based off of movement, maybe some integrate some heart, uh, some heart rate involved. So they're getting better, but they can be a helpful tool. So if you have a smartwatch or another device and the numbers don't look great, and it also matches with how you feel subjectively, then yeah, that could be a, a reason to go talk to your doctor more. I think having that consistency is important though. Uh, you know, technology is great, but I often rely on more rudimentary tools with my patients. We'll just have them, you know, it's like, I want your subjective kind of subjective thoughts, your subjective kind of perceptions and just use a paper and pencil sleep diary and tell me, when do you think you went to sleep? How long do you think it took you? Because that subjective perception is often more important than what their watch is going to say. Your quality and perception shouldn't be informed by the technology. It should be used to support how you feel about it. Yeah, it shouldn't be the basis for your uh, summary of your sleep. So mm -hmm. something that's really popular with people is uh, coffee. What, what's your kind of opinion on like you know drinking coffee, how it affects sleep? What do you recommend to, you know, patients you work with and, and their coffee consumption? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, coffee, caffeine is so individual. Um, so the general advice I give is you want, use like six to eight hours before your desired bedtime is you should stop uh, intake of, or, or you know, whether it's shrinking, eating, supplements, whatever. Uh, because the, the half-life, um, that's kind of the half-life of caffeine. But I have plenty of patients who 
they're just not that sensitive to it. So we'll say, he's like, you know what I have, uh, I might have coffee after dinner or I'll have coffee in the afternoon and it doesn't bother me. I'll say, well, let's not worry about it too much. But I have other patients who says like, I'm drinking a pot of coffee every day. And my last cup of coffee is at 9 PM at night. They will let's work on cutting that back. Something like caffeine is typically not the reason why they're not sleeping well, but it, it certainly can influence. So when it's very excessive and coffee could be soda, energy drink supplements, is that when that is present, you want to be mindful of it. And the same thing could apply to just kind of your diet and, and uh, you know, substances, uh, whether it's alcohol or other drugs, um, even, you know, meal timing is important to pay attention to. And those are the types of factors that are really very individual, but you'll want to work with your patient and get a sense of what their behaviors are. So you can try to modify it if you think it's important and having an impact. Yeah, for sure. And alcohol is another, uh, substance or factor to talk about. Um, could you talk a little bit just about how that affects uh, sleep also? And um, you're just making me uh, think of a podcast I was listening to. And uh, the host was like, I'll cut out my, my coffee, I'll cut it down, but I'll, uh, I'll have a, a Coke Zero instead. And it turns out that that actually had caffeine as well. <laughs> so uh, I think, yeah, it's like uh, there's a lot of caffeine out there and you need to be careful of it. And the timing, like you said as well, the half-life where it gets out of the body in roughly six hours. Uh, is something to consider. Um, but yeah, alcohol, what, what do people need to consider around that and how alcohol affects sleep? Yeah. So alcohol, you know, we want to be mindful of alcohol for uh, a few different reasons. You know, one is from a safety perspective, you know, alcohol can have, you know, certainly in excess can have many negative, uh, negative outcomes, uh, both acute and chronic. Uh, alcohol, I know certainly can be, uh, can interact with a lot of the different medications you're taking. So the patients I often work with, uh, they may be taking a sleep medication. They usually see me when that sleep medication is not effective, but they still may be taking it. They could be on other sedating medications like pain medications. So the use of alcohol with any of these prescribed medications could really increase someone's risk for you know, negative health outcomes. So you want to be mindful of alcohol in that sense, uh, even if it's something like it's just social drinking, you know, having one, two, you know, you know we're not talking about uh, alcohol abuse. You know, alcohol is, has a sedating effect, uh, but alcohol is a terrible sleep aid in the sense that, yes, it could make you feel sleepy or even with enough, it can kind of knock you out. And I'll have patients talk to me and say, well, you know, if I'm having a really bad night, I might have a few drinks and kind of knock myself out. But they oftentimes also say, but my sleep still isn't good. I might fall asleep. And that's the way alcohol kind of when it breaks down in your body and the way it affects the brain affects your sleep is that, yeah, maybe it's putting you to sleep, but it's really not allowing you to get deeper sleep. You know, that restorative sleep that you really need. And you're more likely to wake up through the night so the sleep quality is likely no better, if not worse with alcohol. Uh, so that's something to uh, talk about with patients. Again, if uh, I'll kind of come back to this in a minute, but if a patient is certainly abusing alcohol or other substances, you know, we want to talk with them about uh, kind of specifically about that uh, separate from sleep. 
But if someone is, uh, you know, a social drinker or maybe even occasionally using alcohol as a sleep aid, always want to talk to them about this is what you want to be careful. This is why you might want to change your behavior. A lot of CBTI, BBTI, and these behavioral approaches to sleep is how can you have, how can the patient have more control over their behaviors, their environment to give them the best opportunity to get improved sleep? And you do that, you know, consistently, you know, again, thinking of how can I improve my opportunity, improve the chances I'm going to get a good night's sleep night after night after night. And when you string together days, weeks, months, you know, and you're kind of paying attention to all of these things and making these changes and being effortful, most people find themselves improving their sleep. Uh, so it's, it's always about kind of balancing of what can you change? What are you willing to change? And when it comes to alcohol, I know a lot of patients say, it's like, I want to go out. I want to have a few drinks or I'm going to have a couple glasses of wine at dinner, but I know this is going to affect my sleep and that's okay. So, so it often comes down to just personal choices and having the knowledge of how is XYZ potentially going to impact my sleep. Really, yeah, I feel like this all ties in because we spoke about people having limited, limiting beliefs around their sleep. So someone might say, you know, this is just how I sleep. I get my five hours. That's all I get. But then to speak to an expert such as yourself, you might say, you know, have you ever thought about your caffeine intake? Have you ever thought about your alcohol intake? And uh, maybe it's not a case of, you know, going cold turkey and giving up uh, their coffee or alcohol completely, but it's just kind of changing, you know, the relationship with them. And um, like, have you seen uh, clients or patients change, you know, how their habits or their behaviors around caffeine and alcohol and improve their sleep without giving it up completely? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think caffeine and alcohol when it is not problematic, you know, that is just very common. Many, you know, many people, that's just, it's something they enjoy. It's something they're going to do, uh, whether it's even more regularly with alcohol. And certainly, you know, I'm certainly a, a two to three cups of coffee every day. Uh, and, and so a lot of the patients I see is they're having some form of caffeine or some form of alcohol, at least occasionally. So a lot of them be, do become more mindful of it, um, is that it's something to be aware of. And, and yeah, I'd say, you know, certainly some of them are able to make that change and are more aware knowing, okay, now I know how caffeine is that, yes, I want to be more alert in the afternoon. I'm going to choose to have this cup of coffee. I also know I might have more trouble going to bed at 10 p.m. tonight. Uh, and then when, you know, when we kind of look at the whole pictures, we're rarely just changing one thing. So for that individual, it's like, well, let's talk about what we know about delaying the bedtime so we can increase your sleep drive and say, okay, if you're not ready to go to sleep at 10, because you had that afternoon coffee, try going to bed at 11, you know, don't get into bed yet. Don't be in bed, tossing and turning, having those thoughts of why can't I sleep and say, just go to bed later. Yeah, it could be as simple as like knowing the cup of coffee that's one too many or the drink that's one too many, you know, maybe just modifying your behavior slightly to see an improvement. So it's, that's great to know that people don't have to go cold turkey because that's, I think, what a lot of people are sort of like afraid of. You know, it's like, I like this, I enjoy it. I don't want to enjoy my life less at the improvement of my sleep. You know, what's the kind of the middle ground that I could get to? Yeah, and it's a, 
it's often fine. Like what is compatible, incompatible with, with lifestyle, you know, depending, often depending on the age of the patient I've seen is, is, can make a difference. You no, know, I've had patients, younger patients who, you know, the weekends are often right. That's a time they're going to socialize. They're going to stay up later. And it's just about saying, okay, I'm not asking you to change your life, but I'm asking you to be mindful and be aware of how your behaviors impact your sleep. You know, that's what we're focused on. That's why we're working together. want to improve your sleep. So just knowing kind of the cause and effect. So rarely is there anything so kind of drastic as right going cold turkey, but right. You think of the impact of caffeine on the body across a 24 hour cycle and right. Caffeine is a stimulant. If you have a stimulant close to when you want to sleep, sleep is likely going to be more challenging. So there are certain facts that, you know, you can't change, but again, like you said, it's being mindful, you modify and no, I'm all, I always try to balance the optimization of sleep with reality and kind of with feasibility about the patient. You got to meet them where they are. Yeah. I love that. Meet, meet the client where they are. That's definitely what I try and do with my personal training work as well. And you mentioned age there. So, you know, tell me, is this a myth or a misconception, but do we sleep less as we age? So in general, yes. So obviously when you look at the full spectrum of lifetime, when we are newborn babies, toddlers, we sleep a lot. As we get into our seventies, eighties, nineties, we are often sleeping less. And also the sleep we get changes. So when you look at stages of sleep, so we have, uh, four stages of sleep, uh, kind of light sleep, stage one, a little bit deeper, stage two, deep sleep, stage three. Then we go into REM sleep, which the brain activity looks more like wakefulness, but uh, there's a lot of kind of important uh, cognitive and physical activity going on during the REM. Uh, so the proportions we spend across our sleep stages can change as we age. Also our sort of expected amount of wakefulness during sleep can change. So as we get older, you're more likely to have more wakefulness in the middle of the night. That doesn't mean it's always problematic, but it's sort of just something to be expected. So sometimes patients will come talk to me and always look at kind of, there's the quantitative aspect of sleep. You know, you're looking at these sleep numbers and what we know is typically normal, abnormal. And they might say, well, no, I'm just not sleeping as well. And they say, well, how long are you awake in the middle of the night? And you say, oh, I wake up three times and it takes me 15, 20 minutes to go back to sleep and say, well, yeah, that's, you no, know, it'd be great to be able to fall asleep in, in two, three, five minutes. But again, that's when you look at the function, you know, how is this impacting their function? So that change could be more age related. Um, it may not be related to another, uh, physical or mental health problem. So, uh, whereas if someone's saying, yeah, I wake up three times and I'm up for about 30 to 45 minutes, sometimes I don't go back to sleep. No, that's certainly, okay. Something else is gone here. That is not an age related change that is indicative of, is it insomnia? Is it linked to, uh, you know, is it because of pain? Is that part of the process? You know, is it, again, these racing thoughts, is it related to, um, you know, is a mental health problem part of this process? Uh, so yeah. Those are kind of two uh, kind of extremes, but uh, again, there's the, the, the normal changes you can expect uh, as we age versus is this normal or is this a sleep disorder? 
Yeah, exactly. And that's where, you know, experience and a, and a sleep specialist would, would be very useful. Would it be fair to say that you could become more experienced with your sleep or maybe your sleep habits or just like whatever challenges you face so that you could better manage, let's say insomnia as you get older. So you could maybe sleep more effectively by becoming more experienced. So you can always, I know, I think you can always become a better sleeper. Uh, you know, sleep is, you know, partially a learned behavior. And, you know, I think that's why it's also, you know, sleep is being more and more recognized, whether you kind of consider it is it, it's a pillar of health. When you don't sleep well, many, there are many negative health outcomes. So the way in which we sleep can change. I don't expect someone in their 70s, 80s, 90s to sleep the way they did when they were 18, 20, 30, uh, because sleep is expect. No, there's a that natural change, but also their lifestyle is different. So, really, no matter what age the patient I see is, there are almost you know again they're seeing me because they have a problem. So there is always some sort of change that can be made to improve their sleep. And like I said, this is learned. So that's also the one of the really good benefits of treatments like CBTI and BBTI and other evidence-based psychotherapies, evidence-based practices is that we are teaching skills so that when you leave my office after six sessions, because insomnia is often a, a when, not an if, uh, kind of in the future. It is almost always going to come back in some form, whether it's a one night, a week. But now you have the skills of you know what to do when it comes back. So a patient notice, hey, it's starting to take me a little bit more time to follow, you know, a little longer to fall asleep, or I'm feeling more anxious at night. I'm starting to worry. Let me, let me use those skills that Dr. Well, what was his name? He taught me all those good things about sleep. You know, they may not remember my name, but hopefully they remember what we worked on. Uh, and yeah, so, uh, you know, I think one of your initial, one of your questions to me was how long can the effects of these treatments last? And they are quite durable. You know, a lot of studies, you know, again, because research, we often can't follow for long periods of time, whether, you know, a lot of studies, it's three months, six months, a year out, show that for those patients that have a good response at initial post-treatment, a lot of them maintain those gains. You know, they're not backtracking much. Maybe there's a little bit of change. Uh, there was a, re a recent study that showed a 10-year 10 10-year 10 follow-up and that it showed the same results, that patients that improve during treatment maintain those goals. No, was it 100%? Probably not, but it was a high percentage so that we can kind of say, you know, maybe it's just one study, but say that actually aligns with what we know more clinically and just anecdotally is that the treatment, it gets kind of, it gets ingrained and a patient can apply it as needed. And that it is, you know, maybe it's not always a cure, but they are kind of managing their sleep more effectively long-term. Brilliant. Yeah. So the, the changes are, are lasting. So mm -hmm. you've talked a little bit about uh, the, the research you've done, or you have done research on uh, the behavioral uh, treatment for insomnia, so a brief treatment, and then also uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Could you just talk about the differences between those and uh, then the, the recently finished um, RCT that you did 
uh, the results of yeah. that. Yeah, so, so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is considered what we call it's a multi-component treatment. So kind of the different pieces of CBTI were developed relatively independently over the years. And then, you know, some folks decided, well, let's put them together. So the key components, you have something called stimulus control. And this is uh, kind of goes back to some aspects of classical conditioning or Pavlovian response. And how can we better connect the bed to sleep in a positive way? Because oftentimes the bed is sort of this negative space for sleep and can even be a trigger for poor sleep. So when you're in bed tossing and turning, not sleeping, that becomes normalized. So we try to eliminate that and really reassociate bed and sleep in a positive way. So that's stimulus control and also paying attention to what are these other stimuli that you might be doing in bed that you shouldn't be doing in bed if you want to improve your sleep. So that's TV, reading, music, work, you know, especially if it's stressful. Even if it's not stressful, we really want to highlight the bed is for sleep, sexual activity, or sickness. And that's it. The next is what we would call uh, sleep restriction or time in bed restriction or sleep efficiency training. But the goal there is to really reduce the amount of time spent in bed to sleep only. Uh, so it's, it's very connected to stimulus control, but as no, when you don't sleep well, part of how you can cope with that is you extend your time in bed. You try to go to bed early, sleep in late. But that can often lead to more fragmented sleep. So it's like, yeah, maybe you're getting eight hours of sleep over 10, 11, 12 hours. And it's rarely, it's rarely of good quality. Whereas if you got, you know, a much more consolidated six hours of sleep, that might actually be more kind of more effective for you from a quality and, and functional standpoint. So that's the sleep restriction or time in bed restriction. So sleep restriction is it's what we call it, but it's kind of a poor name because when you look at the studies, we're not reducing sleep too much. Sometimes we'll reduce sleep a little bit, uh, but oftentimes what we're reducing is that wakefulness in bed. So you're sleeping the same amount of time, you're just spending less time in bed. Uh, the next kind of core component is cognitive therapy. You know, cognitive therapy goes way back, um, you know, Aaron Beck, uh, you know, Albert Ellis, you know, kind of these maladaptive negative thoughts and how you can change those thoughts. So when it applies to sleep, it's, it's kind of the same way as you're identifying and trying to change maladaptive negative thoughts, whether it's sleep specific or in general, as long as it's interfering with your sleep, we want to try to change that. And the next kind of core piece that, you know, again, was developed, you know, decades ago is this idea of relaxation. So de-arousal physical or cognitive de-arousal, because what we know is that individuals with insomnia, uh, you know, they often describe, you know, I get into bed and it's like a light switch turns on or my mind starts racing or I fell asleep on the couch, but I get into bed and I'm full of energy. So how can we help them feel more ready for sleep to uh, de-arouse them? So it can be as simple as diaphragmatic deep breathing, uh, doing progressive muscle relaxation, doing maybe something more cognitive, such as guided meditation or mindfulness. It could be more like yoga based. So there are any number of different techniques that can be used to decrease physiological and cognitive arousal. So those are kind of the four key components of CBTI. 
So BBTI and what kind of research found over time is that when you look at the individual components, like stimulus control, sleep restriction, cognitive therapy are really kind of thinking, if you're doing CBTI, you really should be doing those three things. The relaxation is good, but maybe not quite as strong. The evidence maybe isn't quite as strong as the other three. But the science seems to support those behavioral components. So the stimulus control and the sleep restriction. So I, you know, I did not uh, develop BBTI. It's kind of come across in various forms or kind of these briefer versions out there. Um, so the version I use developed by colleagues of mine at the University of Pittsburgh. And so I kind of use their format, but it kind of ta takes stimulus control, sleep restriction. They kind of rewrote it in a way that's, that's really, uh, I think, helpful to a patient in four rules, kind of the four rules to improve your sleep is reduce your time in bed. Don't be in bed if you're not sleeping. Don't do these non-sleep activities in bed and get up at the same time every day. And so that kind of covers stimulus control and sleep restriction in a, a little bit more of a straightforward way. And so that kind of that version of BBTI really resonated with me and especially my kind of my clinical work in the primary care setting saying, okay, this is very tangible. This goes along with these other brief interventions that can be done in primary care, whether it's for depression, anxiety, stress management, trauma, substance use, is that if we want to increase access to care, this is one way to do it. Uh, and so the trial that I did, and I finished up uh, uh, in spring of last year, was to go head to head. And that's kind of the way interventions work, is that if you have a new intervention and say, I want to promote this, well, you got to test it against what we already know works. And so uh, that's what I did is that I recruited veterans with, uh, with chronic insomnia and randomly assigned them to either uh, receive uh, CBTI, kind of the typical way it's delivered in VA. Uh, so they get an intake and then they get treatment sessions as determined by the clinician. Sometimes that isn't five sessions, sometimes it's eight sessions. So it kind of varies. And that was compared to veterans assigned to BBTI. The BBTI was always four sessions uh, unless they dropped out early or just kind of decided I'm good, I don't need to continue. But it was four sessions and another strength of BBTI. And again, it's really geared towards a more typically a more mild to moderate severity patient and was really designed not for the psychologist with the highest level of training for insomnia. So to really increase access, access to care, you have to have a treatment that can be delivered with fidelity by non-specialists. Also, if it's gonna be done in primary care, it has to be a brief treatment. You know, Primary care visits are not long. So they developed this treatment to really be delivered in four sessions, 30 minutes or less. And it can be done in person. It can be done by phone. It can be done by telehealth. Uh, and so that's where I saw is that when you compare CBTI, BBTI head to head, there aren't drastic differences, but I think when you apply it over big populations, you can see the benefits there and you can see, well, if I'm a primary care psychologist doing CBTI 
might not be very appealing or I'm going to be adapting it. So it's looking a lot more like BBTI. So I think that's the strength of BBTI. And so when I did the study, I know we tested, we recruited uh, about 60 veterans. So uh, started with about 30 in each group. And when we compared at the end, we found that there were no differences between the treatment. And the initial study was to test what we call non-inferiority. So I wasn't actually looking to see was one, one uh, treatment better than the other. I was actually hoping to find that one treatment was no worse than the other. So it's kind of a different way to think of it as I wanna say, well, this briefer treatment is not worse than CBTI. And while I wasn't able to say that from a statistical and analytical perspective, but when you look at the data, you say there was no significant difference between the two groups on the primary outcomes that are used. So whether it was the insomnia severity index, which is a common measure used, um, and say they reduced in a they reduced their score in a similar way, uh, or if it was looking at their sleep diary. So again, that pen and paper measure of their perception of their sleep. When you look at okay, well, how long did it take them to fall asleep in that reduction? or how long were they awake in the middle of the night, that reduction, or their sleep efficiency, the percentage of sleep versus time in bed. When you look at all of those changes across the two groups, there were no differences. So that to me was a sign of saying, you know what, this treatment for the, you know, again, this small population that I recruited, you know, I can't make too broad of claims, but I say, you know what, for veterans that kind of meet similar criteria, both treatments are effective. Both treatments work. So that gives me confidence that if I'm delivering the brief treatment in primary care, I, I have confidence that this is going to be an effective treatment. Now, there's always the clinical kind of clinical nuance that you have to have is saying, if I'm seeing a, a, a very complex patient, I'm probably not going to deliver BBTI in primary care because that may not be enough for them. But if I'm seeing somebody with more mild to moderate, they're not too complex, they don't have other disorders that I'm gonna need to really account for and say, well, you know what, let's give them four sessions and see, and kind of start there. Again, it's kind of could be this lower threshold, lower entry point. And on the patient side, maybe they don't have access to specialists. And also maybe they don't wanna go see a mental health provider even though they may be seeing a mental health provider in primary care, they're staying in primary care. And while stigma for mental health has really been reducing, which is fantastic, there might still be some stigma there. So at least it's, you know what, I'm still in my primary care office. So that gives me more comfort in engaging in a treatment. And so that's another big part of it is you want to help patients engage in a treatment. Uh, and if that's going to be that entryway, then that's, that's what we want as long as kind of there's that evidence base that we can be confident that this treatment, we can we kind of trust it. Do anything to your sleep or it might worsen your sleep, which is, you know, an important consideration. Um, and similar, similarly, the, uh, the BBTI, um, it mightn't be better than CBTI, but um, it might be shorter in duration. So that means that you're saving time, which is a huge benefit. So it's kind of like, let's just say somebody has a little bit of alcohol and um, they use that for sleep. If they were to swap that out and implement BBTI instead, 
that could be a huge change to their sleep, especially over the long term, which we've talked about as well. So um, for somebody with a self-limiting belief around sleep, oh, I can't change it, you know, I'd like to think there that's one avenue to improve their sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think what, what's important uh, also to know about BBTI is that it is briefer, but it shouldn't be seen as a light version of CBTI. You know, BBTI is developed, it is an evidence-based practice. It still involves, you know, th those behavior changes, the stimulus control, the sleep restriction that you're doing in CBTI is the same as you're doing in BBTI. And that's often the hardest part of treatment is that you are asking individuals to sometimes make significant changes to their sleep routine that maybe is, you know, ingrained for decades. So that part of it, it's not, and, and this is also a kind of, I'll, I'll get on my soapbox briefly about, uh, you may have heard of sleep hygiene and sleep hygiene, you know, really try to handle this home is not an evidence-based practice. There's some good advice there. And a lot of times sleep hygiene incorporates aspects of CBTI and BBTI, but what's missing from sleep hygiene is the is the follow-up and the consistency. And then, you know, handing someone a pamphlet uh, or a handout of good ideas can be helpful, but for individuals who have sleep disorders, who have insomnia disorder, a chronic disorder, that except in very, very rare occasions is gonna help them. And it might even do more harm because then you, they get referred to someone like me and I tell them what we're gonna be doing. And they might say, well, I've tried that. You know, I've done that before. And then you have to, there needs to be a little bit more convincing that barrier to engage with them is a little bit harder. So sleep hygiene can be a part of CBTI, BBTI, because we do want to incorporate aspects of, you know, substance use, caffeine, uh, you know, the behaviors that they might be doing in bed, which is often thought of light exposure. That's all important, but it's not, again, it's not an evidence-based treatment. So someone with a sleep disorder, sleep hygiene is not going to work. And that's why we use it as the control condition in a lot of clinical trials, because we know it's really not gonna work. And maybe there's some placebo effect, but for the most part, it is, uh, yeah, it's not effective. So that is the end of episode 24. We are gonna do one more episode in the sleep series. And if you have any questions, any feedback, or thoughts on how to improve the series. Uh, I'll attach my email in the show notes. Uh, keep listening and uh, look out for more episodes coming up in the near future.